it's going to be a great Christmas. I, I'm really, really, really excited. Uh, so I just heard, um, as the choir was singing, that uh, maybe our promo for the Christmas service was a bit too good. We sold out of the 9 a.m. already. <laughs> Yeah, so people are trying to get into the night. So, uh, so here's the thing. <laughs> 11 o'clock is really good. <laughs> also, yeah, identical services. Um, but also, we're going trying to clear through some um, duplicates at the moment to make a bit more space. Um, but if you're planning to not come for the 9 a.m. and you haven't got around to canceling your ticket, can I encourage you to just like search Christmas Day service, find your 9 a.m., uh, just hit cancel, and then that way more people can come. Because what we don't want to do is, um, we, we actually don't have a max limit, but there's 350 that can sit in here, right? So that's why we capped it at 350. If we do more, then we have to have overflow in the lobby and the like, and we felt like, let's just have a good atmosphere in the service. Um, it was so good to be here in worship in person. I know, hey, Zoom guys, you know, eventually consider coming to service. I feel like FGA is as risky as the shopping center and various other places that are all completely open already anyway. So, you know, um, but it's so good to be in the service. Today's worship, Raj, was so, um, so good. I, I, I really loved how... Um, you're incorporating so, you know, everybody's bringing their gifts uh, in. And, and, you know, you suddenly will see that on Christmas Day. We actually have the line dances. We've got a drama. Uh, Chris Tan has written two original songs. Uh, you know, even James, who's up the back there with his uh, camera on, with the, with the headphones on. Yay, James. His mother hand-painted a background. <laughs> <laughs> for our play from scratch. So, you know, like, it's one of these things where everybody is bringing their best um, uh, for this Christmas. So um, I want to encourage you, if you've got space or you want to invite some friends, it will be a pretty friendly um, service for visitors. Uh, I have limited my message to 15 minutes, which I feel like is really hard because this intro will be 15 minutes. <laughs> Uh, but we will do it on Christmas Day. It'll be a fairly short service, you know, FGA short. Uh, anyway, the next service is coming in at 11. Okay, let's open with prayer. Father, I thank you so much that Christmas is coming, that we've got good news around the corner. Um, we thank you for the opening of this city, and we pray for the protection of the city. We pray, uh, Lord God, for your kingdom to go forth as we invite people to homes, as we do hospitality, as we reach out to those around us. Help us to do it uh, motivated, not so much uh, by duty or by rules of religion, but motivated by the Holy Spirit who will bear in us good fruit. Uh, we commit today's message into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's our Christmas series. Uh, our Christmas series is called, by the way, Welcome to the Family, all right? Um, but I thought, hey, it's the week before Christmas. I've been limited to 15 minutes on Christmas Day to talk about, I know, to talk about Christmas. So I thought, hey, let's like, let's delve, you know, let's delve into the Christmas story, right? Um, over the last 
two weeks, we've been exploring Welcome to the Family, our Christmas series. The first week was God called us or created us to be close, right? So we had Jordan come and talk to us about how God's plan was actually for us to be close. He came close on Christmas Day. He came to be with us. Then last week, Roger and I shared a, a sermon, and we spoke, you may have not gotten the Christmas link, but we spoke about how Christmas was really about reconciliation, so God was actually trying to reconcile us. That was the Galatians passage that we have, that in the fullness of time, God came, right, to adopt us into his family, to reconcile us back home. Um, and so Christmas was about reconciliation. Today, we're going to take that a little bit further. Uh, but before we do that, I thought it would be fun to take this real-world approach and look at the nativity. We've been doing real world the whole of this year. Our theme is genuine faith at home. And last week, Roger and I, we tried to, as much as we could, give us a real world picture of our exact dynamics, you know, where we unpacked a fight. I'm pretty sure it won't be our last fight, right? But, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how even as friends who have been together in ministry for such a long time and we we we, um, we love the Lord. We clearly share a vision of household of faith together. We can still drift apart. We can still be uncaring to each other. And, and it requires steps for reconciliation um, that sometimes, you know, we feel like it's not included in the instruction manual, um, but is uh, very much part of what God intends for us to do, right? And so uh, I feel like, hey, we're in this whole year of let's just tell things as they are because the, I'm finding actually more and more that cliches are not helpful. Uh, and you can coast. I, I grew up in church as a Christian. You can coast through church and all of your religious life. You could grow up as a high schooler or a, a young adult in church. And then when you think about how much you know of God and how much you know of your faith... It can be summarized by a few cliches. It can come down to just very simple rules that your mother tells you, or whatever it is. And that's not genuine faith. Genuine faith is rich. It is deep. That's why there's so many books of the Bible. If the Bible could be summarized in like a five-point PowerPoint or whatever it is, then God would have done it. But there are so many different stories in the Bible. There are so many facets around wisdom, around real life, around God's redemption, around prophetic things. Um, and we really, in our faith, need to pursue it in its depth. So, as an example, we're going to talk about this nativity. Uh, you would have, I just took a, a, a picture from the internet, right? But I imagine that most people, when they think of the nativity, they, they go, oh, yeah, this is what happened on, uh, you know, and, and, and we know it's wrong, but we imagine that one evening, a holy night that was very silent, <laughs> right? Uh, Jesus was born with a star overhead, and the, uh, the shepherds with their sheep showed up in a stable or a manger someplace outside because there was no room in the inn, and the wise men coincidentally rocked up at the same time. And so in this exact moment for the Instagram shot, 
Kapow! They're all there. Merry Christmas. And, and we know, like, surely, surely, right? We know that this exact scene did not happen, right? This exact scene did not happen. In fact, um, we know that, that uh, well, okay, I was going to make an FGA baby joke. It's like an FGA baby party. I've been to so many now. All these parties I go to, we had 20, I think almost 20 kids born, you know, over COVID. So we now know what everyone was doing over lockdown. But, you know, you go to these parties and then suddenly it's a Christmas party. Everybody's around. There's the baby. Then the people come from afar, from near, like, yay, it's a party. But it's not like that. We know, for instance, that the wise men, firstly, we don't even know if it's three. Right? Then we know for a fact that they were not there on the night Jesus was born. They rocked up years or months later, later, at some later point in time. So I was thinking, let's look at the nativity. It's the week before Christmas. It's worthwhile for us to ground ourselves in Scripture for what happened this Christmas day so that we're not confused that Santa Claus also showed up. And we're not confused about exactly what Christmas is all about, all right? Um, so let's look at it in the context of the culture of the time and what might actually have been, what might have actually taken place, the genuine picture of what might have taken place. And again, nobody can tell what, a, like, I... Everyone's guessing, all right? It's many, many, long time ago, but I can tell you, if you guess, it's not like this, all right? Uh, so we're going to be painting a, not a perfect picture, but we're hoping it's a closer picture to what happened on Christmas Day or around the Christmas period. And we're going to be focusing on welcome and the building of relationships. You see, from the modern telling of the nativity, you might get the impression that Jesus wasn't welcome. Right? He rocks up, kind of unwanted. There's no room in the inn. Nobody can put him up. So he gets put in a stable, right? And it's partly true that he wasn't welcome. In fact, he was prophesied to not be welcome. So globally, he wasn't welcome. Nobody, you know, there wasn't like a, you know, the WHO didn't like send out a global message to the world. Hey guys, the Savior is arriving, you know, uh, or whatever it is, right? There was no global messaging system to alert, you know, anyone for a global event, right? So at some level, he was not welcome. Also, we know that Herod did not like the fact that Jesus was prophesied. In fact, he went off and he killed everybody under the age, uh, kids under the age of two, right? So there's definitely, it's correct to say that Jesus was not welcome, certainly not welcome in the way the creator of the world should be welcome when he was to arrive um, in his creation. But there were some people who welcomed him. That much is true in the Christmas story. There were, while largely he was not welcome, what we see in the Christmas story is a highlight of people who welcomed him. And we're going to take a bit of a look. 
into that. And this is where we're going to veer away um, from what most of us are modern telling of the nativity. All right? That's, that's not to say that this is not helpful, because it's nice to show in one slide all of the things that happened at Christmas. But I feel like uh, it's gone a little bit off target, so we need to sort of center it back in again. Talk a little bit more in detail about what was going on. Because, um, and to me, quite helpful if you've got a lot of time to read this Christmas, I like the book um, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. But also, there have been many other um, scholars that have been looking into this phenomenon, um, actually. And so, it's things I'm going to be talking about are largely widely accepted. In fact, they've changed in um, some of our newer versions of the Bible in footnotes, and if you look closely. But, you know, there's a big divide between the academic world and the theologians and what comes out in your Christmas card. So I'm going to hope to, like, bridge that gap um, today. So here's the first thing you need to understand. Joseph, I mean, we, we know this. Joseph had family in Bethlehem. We know he's not just rocking up. This is not New York City with millions and millions of people. Bethlehem is not a big place, especially compared to modern standards. Also in their time, relational memories were long. I, I remember talking to some of my relatives. They, they fly all the way to China, and then they, they find their relatives. They go back to the town, and there's like a list. You know, there's a book with all the relatives' names, and they're, oh, yeah, this is so-and-so from who, Right. Joseph didn't have to make many jumps in Bethlehem to explain who he was and how he was related to the people in Bethlehem, right? I'm the, um, I'm the son of so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so gets to Levi, gets to David, right? And so it would be reasonable to assume that when Joseph returned to his birth town of Bethlehem, he came to a place where even if they don't know him exactly, they knew of him and of his family. In fact, it wasn't just a normal lineage and not a normal family. He was kind of like, he was kind of famous there. Kind of like royalty. Not, not actual royalty, but he was kind of known. Because he was from the lineage, which was very important back then, the lineage of David. In fact, Bethlehem would be known as the city of David. So it would be as if, you know, you had rocked up and, um, I don't know, Pastor Roland, he's got a daughter, Chara, right? And then they rocked up at church and she said, hey, I'm Roland's daughter, you know, or something like that, right? Like it, people would have been able to make those jumps. Also, we know from the hospitality culture in that time, that they would have been hospitable to strangers. The culture, the reputation of the city of Bethlehem actually would have rested, because it's a small place, word travels around. The hospitality reputation of that place would have rested on how they treated not just somebody of like semi-famous lineage, somebody who uh, wandered in, but a pregnant lady about to give birth they'd have to do something. Otherwise, it'd be so terrible. So we, we have here this context, a cultural context for when, when Joseph and Mary show up. And we know they were there for days. Luke, um, 
Luke 2 verse 4 says, and when, uh, you know, the, the days had come. So we know that they'd actually not just showed up, oh no, the inn has got no vacancy. Let's go to the stable. Bam, the kid is born. Oh, shepherds, oh, oh, wise men. And then one night it's all one and done. It, it wasn't like that. They rocked up, introduced themselves, had time to settle and do things, right? And then the baby was born. It wasn't a surprise to people that there's a baby. You know, you're probably heavily pregnant, right? So, like, it's not quite this, like, sudden shock, evil innkeeper picture that we've got. So let's read Luke 2, 1 to 7, with some of this context in mind. Okay, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this is the chaos starter that begins Joseph and Mary's journey to Bethlehem, right? Um, this was the first registration when Cunerus was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. So we know that Joseph went to his place. He's not going to an unfamiliar place. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, someplace else where he was living, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. Oh, what? They call Bethlehem. What? The city of David, of whom Joseph is in the lineage of. So it's significant that Luke calls Bethlehem the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. It is plainly obvious to everyone who is both reading it at that time, Luke's account at that time, but also to the people there that Joseph is part of the wider family of Bethlehem, He's part of the people who should be given hospitality to. And that Mary is going to have a kid pretty soon. It's very, very obvious, right? And while they were there, oh, okay, so this is your first clue that, you know, it doesn't happen like instantaneously. While they were there, the time, in fact, that word time in Greek is the days came. So the, the day came for her to give birth. It means while they were there, we're not talking like she was there for 30 minutes or something. But while she was there, the day came, or the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Not that he was living in a manger the whole time, you know, like watching his iPad from the manger, whatever, right? It was like when the moment came for her to give birth, right, then she laid him in this manger because... Oh, it turns out at a crucial moment, there was no place for them in the inn. So we're going to look a little bit uh, into that. I thought it'd be pretty fun uh, to do this. So the manger, you know, the manger. We we often think of the manger as um, a stable um, or barn, right? And so rich people in those days, they would have a stable or a barn. They would keep all of their like. If you were really rich, you could have all your animals somewhere else, and then uh, your house would be animal free. Yep. But. The average person, the most likely scenario is that they were actually in a simple village home. Uh, 
right? And and um, I, I think this is really really exciting. So uh, here is a, an amazing drawing. <laughs> yeah, high definition. Um, uh, your average home was actually just one big room, just one big, I don't know, place, right? That's why um, in Matthew 5, 14 to 15, it says, like, why would you hide a lamp under a bushel? You, 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 you put it out, and it would light the whole house. How could it light the whole house? Well, the whole house is like <laughs> one, one room. So in, in a lot of their... And so this is a sideways view of, of let's say, one uh, average house, and there are many variations of it. But the whole family would eat, live, sleep on the upper level on this house. Then there'd be a bottom area where the animals would be, right? And what would happen is at night they would take the animals in because people could um, steal them. They wanted them to be sheltered and whatever else it is. And then in the morning they would let the animals out if this was like a common, average, ordinary house. And then the manger bit would be uh, at the top, the animals could then just feed off the, the feeding trough. Uh, we know it's something a little bit like this because you know you've got um, Jephthah in Judges uh, 11, 27 to 40, I, I won't go into it, but Jephthah, he, he, he swears, he's like, um, I will offer up the first, the first person who comes out of the house, I will, I will kill and and, and offer to God. And he was just fully expecting uh, an animal to walk out of that house, but instead his daughter walks out, which is so abnormal in that passage, right? Why does he do it? Because in a lot of these homes, the animals live on the ground area, and they, are, you know, they, they, they can't go to colds and buy lamb. They, they have to have their lamb around, right? So um, it's, it's generally kind of inside, and it's down there. Okay. So from a top view, you've got the stable. Yeah, this is amazing. Like stable, you got the mangers, and then you got the family a living room. Is kind of now again, nobody knows for sure, but this is literally how Palestinian homes uh, or Israeli homes uh, were back then, and some of it's been preserved till today. So you can still see this. Okay. Um, next. Uh, so in some homes, you would then have a guest room. So in some of the rooms, it could be an upper room uh, on the roof. So uh, that's where like Elijah could stay or, or various guests could stay. Or it could be at the back, and you could have another sort of guest entrance uh, over there to attach to the house. But this was like the broad layout of most of the houses there. So then um, you've got... There was no room in the inn. This word inn has been the one that has been looked at quite closely. The normal word that is used for a commercial inn, for example, in the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan story, uh, that word is pando cheon, right? Uh, which, which means a place that receives all. Pando is all, um, and the cheon is a derivative for receive, okay? So a commercial inn would have used the word pandacheon uh, and said, hey, there is no room in the motel or hotel or whatever it is. Yep. But the word that was used in Luke is katalima. And you can look at this in your modern Bible, in your ESV, you'll see a little footnote, you'll, you'll see a whole bunch of things um, in there as, as people have been researching this. Uh, katalima uh, pretty much just means a place to stay or an inn, a house, or guest room. 
right? And we saw in that picture, uh, there was a catalima in a lot of, um, they would literally call that place. And so you can look at the word catalima across the Bible, and you can see it used as an attached room to a house in all the Old Testament. Okay, what is the point of saying all of these? The point is that if you take a look at what would have happened when Mary and Joseph came, we actually end up seeing a picture of hospitality and not seeing a picture of being rejected by a corporate um, innkeeper who, who doesn't uh, you know, want anything to do with them. If you look, firstly, it is a very, very busy time in Bethlehem. It's not a big place. People have, you know, because it's not a big place, a lot of people move away to make their life elsewhere. They get married, they have children, right? And so by the time everyone's coming back, this little small place gets full really quick. So it's very, very likely that all the guest rooms are full. People have already got guests in, right? So by the time Mary and Joseph show up, it's very likely whoever hosted them already had other relatives, other guests in the place. But what we see in this picture of the nativity is that we see this host family. We don't know who this host family is. We can guess that maybe they were related, maybe, right? But even if they were not related, they're somewhat kinsmen. Even if they were not somewhat kinsmen, they were people of the same town, right? Uh, but this host family, we see them actually try to do their best to put up Joseph and Mary. Not for one night, for a while. For a while. All right? So they end up welcoming and providing a place for Jesus to be born. And we know this. We know that however you read the Luke story, Jesus ended up having a place to be born. It just turns out to be a manger, and it turned out that there was no place in, however you translate it. But there was a place for Jesus in Bethlehem. Who provided that place? He didn't just go out into the street someplace, right? Um, if you take this view of what happened in the nativity, what you end up seeing, which I love, is that when the creator of the world arrived, people, people did what they could. This family, this host family, who didn't have to take Jesus in, or whoever it was, they did kind of their best in given the circumstances. But it was enough. It was enough. Whatever they offered, the two uh, fish and the five loaves or whatever it is, right? Like, whatever they offered, even though it wasn't their mega guest room, even though it wasn't whatever the thing is, they still offered it to Jesus. Mary still had a place, the baby still had a place to lay his head. And for the creator of the world, could you imagine? It was enough. We're nowhere near a five-star hotel. And it was enough. In fact, if you take this metaphor and you take it further along to the nativity and you meet the shepherds, you're about to discover that the shepherds who, let's understand the shepherds a little bit, the shepherds were not high-class people. 
right? The shepherds were actually very, very poor. What would happen is your average uh, uh, shepherding company, I guess, would have a landowner, a person who's the head shepherd or the person who runs the shepherding organization, whatever it is, and they would hire hirelings, Right? So not, they would hire hirelings. That's why there's all these parables about a hireling shepherd versus the son of the owner, right? They can't all be sons of the owner, right? So most shepherds actually were not property owners. They, they were not rich. They didn't have homes with catalumas, with cattle inside. The, they didn't. They were just people who were hirelings. Yep. Just living hand to mouth. And Jesus meets the poor and he receives them. And it was good enough for the creator of the world. Even shepherds. Another clue actually, which I find really interesting, another clue that, uh, that Jesus was very likely housed inside someone's house and not in a stable is uh, because of the culture of hospitality of that day, if these shepherds showed up and met Jesus and this newborn baby, and they saw him in an actual stable uh, with animals lying there, just a baby, they would have taken him and, and housed him. They would have said, hey, let me help you. But they showed up, and they found that even though the place was very crowded, and even though they had to like make amends and put him in a manger inside the house and do some whatever, they found him actually cared for. Right? But shepherds was enough. And then... And then you've got the wise men. If you take it further, you've got these wise men or kings that have come, right? And they come bearing gifts. So now it's not just the poor who is receiving Jesus. It's not just the common, everyday, average person. It is the rich, the wise, the magi, whatever you want to call them. They also receive Jesus. So while the whole world was largely unwelcoming, there were actually three groups of people that welcomed Jesus. That is why they're in our nativity story. The, the nativity story focuses on the people who actually looked after our Savior when he came. So when Jesus came, the poor, the ordinary, and the rich were all received by Jesus. It was all, Jesus came for all. And if you look at the nativity passage from that perspective, it means that actually all, Jesus received gifts from all. He received gifts from all. He received the place to stay from whoever was that person who put him up. And then he received the adoration from even the lowly shepherds. And he received the presence from the kings. So what does that mean for us today? And how did I do a 30-minute intro to a message that's going to end in 10 minutes? What does it mean for us today as we look at relationships and welcoming to the family? Well, last week, we looked at how we can fix broken relationships, right? We're like, hey, we get it. It's, it's awkward. It's tough. Uh, sometimes so much time has passed that you don't even know how to bring up the issue or the issue is no longer the main issue, but all these other things have now become the issue, right? And so we tried to unpack. If you missed that sermon, you can go back. It's online. You can hear Roger and I argue uh, again, right? 
Um, but I feel like that's brought out in Galatians 6, 1 to 3. So again, we're finishing the year, and uh, there is actually a plan for the year. Um, we're finishing the year, and we're finishing Galatians, and Galatians ends after the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It ends with Galatians 6, and it goes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... It means if you guys have some kind of falling out, if you transgress, someone has done something wrong to you, you feel like they really like hurt you, dodged you, whatever the thing is, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch though on yourself, then like check yourself first, lest you too be tempted, tempted to blow your top, tempted to uh, act selfishly, whatever it is, right? Bear one another's burdens so fulfill, um, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, like you're too good to be the one to apologize, too good to be the one to restore, when actually he is nothing, he deceives himself. Meaning that actually all of us who have been forgiven by God have done wrong to God, and yet he, he reconciled with us. So that means if we think we're too good to reconcile to somebody else, we incorrectly viewed our goodness because we're kind of like nothing. We're deceiving ourselves that we have no problem, all right? So that was the passage that talks about fix. And this week, as I finish off, we're going to look at build. How do you strengthen and build a relationship because your relationship cannot just be fixing problems, right? You cannot be like married to someone or dating them and 90% of the conversations you have is fixing problems. Hey, who's going to pick up the kids? Oh, why did you not say hi to me the other day? Oh, hey, you know what? I need to have a games night. Oh, I need to do this. Like you can't just live off of fixing problems every day, right? You've got to build into your relationship at some level. And I think the Christmas nativity story gives us an insight into how the correct response was when Jesus came and we were able to take our steps to build our own relationship with God, to build as humanity offered. It was actually really pathetic. Let me put it to you. If that was representative of the best that humanity could offer God himself, oh man, we haven't done well. But Jesus, God would look at that and go, I receive it. It was good. It was sufficient enough to have been made into scripture um, and for us to even talk about it uh, today. Here is what's at the end of Galatians. We're literally, after this passage, after this, it goes into the benediction. So there's nothing else that the book of Galatians says I mean, there is, but, you know, it's just a benediction, right? The main part of Galatians is ending here. So you've got all this walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, right? And it, it hits the end, and it says this. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. For if we do not give up, then, as we have opportunity, as long as there's an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are the household of faith. But let us do good to everyone. I want to put it to you. Here is the big 
surprise take home. It will transform your marriage. It will transform your relationship with your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, the stranger that you meet on the street, your neighbor who's next to you, or Jesus Christ who shows up in your house to be born on that day. If you do good, regardless of what your current situation is, maybe, maybe all the relatives have decided to show up at your place, and you go like, ah, I got no more space. Whatever, I, I don't think I can do any good. If you can somehow make a bit of space, and even if it's just a manger somewhere, even if it's just a, wow, that counts for, that counts for something. In fact, the point of today is do good even if you're full. And I, I get it. Some of us, we're like maxed this Christmas. We're so used to like being by ourselves and, you know, like just like watch whatever show, wake up whatever time, go to sleep late, whatever, right? And, and now that everything's opening up, we're maxed. It's like the census in Bethlehem. That's what Melbourne is like. Everyone's opened up, international visitors coming, whatever, right? We are full. And today's message is, hey, let's take an example from, from the nativity scene and go, we were called actually to do good even if we're full. Even if you're full. You're also called to do good even if you're poor. These shepherds could have said, hey, I'm pretty sure there'll be kings arriving with presents, maybe, right? You know, whatever I can offer is not going to be much. It's not going to be much. But even if you're poor, even if you're a student, even if you, you feel a little bit insecure at FGA or around in your street or in your family, you feel like, ah, I'm the one who doesn't have a lot to offer. I would just hope other people do good and I'll just like, I'll take a break. I'll take a break from it. Jesus would still call on us to do good. The, the end of Galatians would still say, do good to everyone. That's what comes out in the nativity passage as well. And then, even if you are rich, like even if your present is literally gold, you might be thinking, hey, I've got many things to do this Christmas. I got many, like I got heaps of stuff to do this Christmas. I don't need to do good. Somebody else is going to take care of these things, right? I'm going to just enjoy myself. I've got a lot of stuff organized. I want to encourage you. Even the wise men, even the kings offered their hospitality. They did good to Jesus. And so I feel like the reason why I kind of anchored it around the nativity is because we're, we're coming up to Christmas. But also, I'm trying to give us an insight to how can we, in a godly way, build relationships. The series is called Welcome to the Family, right? And so, sure, you can be fixing, but we need to take some steps, especially as we come back together as a community, as all of Melbourne comes back together, as we come back together as family, as we come back together as church. I think it is, if, and I, and I know it sounds really simple, but if we were to just take steps this Christmas to say, I, Scripture compels me 
to do good. In fact, it's what is the fruit of what it should be. If I'm led by the Spirit, because it says just before the, the end of Galatians, it says, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you reap from the Spirit. And then it says, do good. The things of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, these are the things, the good things that we can sow in to our family relationships, our friendships, the people in our community, the people around us, those who are in need, we can do good. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, if you're interested in building relationship, you making that step to do good, even if it's your wife of 20 years, 30 years, and you, you do something nice for her, or your husband, or your children, or your children, you're thinking about your parents, or you're thinking about your school, and you go, oh man, even though I'm pretty full, or I'm pretty poor, or maybe you're like, hey, I've got a lot of resources. Whichever way you fall, if you go, I'm gonna respond, like how the exemplary people in the nativity story that have been highlighted to us, if I'm going to respond in their way, I'm going to do good. And what we saw in nativity was a small portion of humanity did good. And what I love about the nativity, what I love about Jesus' message, the gospel message, is that whatever that was offered, it was good enough for the creator of the world. It actually turns out you're not going to impress him even with your gold or your frankincense. You're not even going to impress him with your manger. <laughs> you're not. But you will impress him. You will actually capture the attention of our creator when you reflect him. You will touch. Heaven will touch earth. And it is these types of things that become markers of Christianity. They do. They become markers of Christianity. So how good, how much good are you doing in your home, in your family? What's the next week going to look like? Maybe somebody wants to invite a friend along to the party, but you're like, ah! Or, or, or you're thinking, it's just too troublesome to have to deal with all my relatives, and i got that weird relative who's all these conditions and whatever. Like... Hey, this season is the time for us to do good. The story that we will be telling on Christmas Day, the one that's been repeated for thousands of years, is about a small subsection of humanity, whether they were ordinary, whether they were poor, or whether they were rich. They did good to our Savior when he arrived. Father, I just pray for us right now, Lord, that you would help us to be a church um, of, of people who do good. Help us this year to, to look at uh, Christmas as an opportunity to do good. Help us to build in our relationships. The relationships that you've placed us in, help us to sow goodness into those relationships. Give us even right now, Holy Spirit, ideas, promptings, convictions of what we can do as we step out to be good as Christ was good to us. So commit this into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord.